This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And the whole goal of this show, obviously if you've been listening, you might know it, um, it is to connect farmers with consumers. Of course, Countless farmers and ranchers supply us with a plethora of goods, you know, like produce, organic, conventional, um, beef, regular milk, oat milk, so much stuff that we can buy online in a grocery store. And that's not even mentioning, you know, the countless byproducts that we get from agriculture, like leather, medicine, fireworks, band-aids, all that good stuff. But sometimes consumers want to support a specific growing practice or a specific farmer. For example, maybe you just want to buy organic produce. Um, Maybe you just want to buy regeneratively raised beef. And that's awesome. You have those choices and you can definitely do that if you want to. But sometimes it's really hard to know what practices you're supporting with your purchase, especially when it comes to buying stuff, like stuff outside of food. But luckily, there are some awesome companies that are trying to build better relationships between producers and brands that want to highlight these farmers and ranchers doing wonderful things in the world of regenerative ranching and sustainability. So on the show, we are chatting with Wyatt Bell from Land to Market. So Land to Market, like I said before, kind of builds those bridges between producers and brands. And some example brands are like Rep Provisions, Honest Bison, both of which we've had on the show, and others like Epic Provisions, Timberland, and Ugg, just to name a few. I mean, they've got some really big brands that they work with. And basically, they help partner these brands with farmers and ranchers around the country doing sustainable or regenerative ranching. And they do that so that, you know, these brands can work with partners like that, and they can also bring that stuff to consumers. And so on the interview today, Wyatt and I are going to talk about the background of Land to Market and also his background, like how he really got into sustainable agriculture and really just learning about that whole market and that whole economy. We'll also talk about the importance of consumer choice, why consumers want to go this route, and sometimes why consumers can't. Like maybe they don't have the buying power to support these growing practices, and that's okay. Um, There's a lot of choices out there that consumers can make no matter what. So this is super cool. I love that, you know, more brands are being, you know, I guess more intentional about what they're doing, where they're buying their goods from, um, you know, to make their goods, like for Timberland to make their boots or even Ugg to make their boots and all that good stuff. So this is super cool. Check out Land to Market, check out their website and all that stuff will be linked below. And you can see the countless brands that they work with and some of which you might already be supporting and you don't even know that they are supporting some awesome farmers and ranchers out there doing some great things. So thanks so much for listening. Check out all the links below. And of course, if you enjoy this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. If you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you might be listening to it, 
there's always a handy little share feature. You can, you know, drop somebody a text message, email it to them, whatever. So thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoy this interview with Wyatt. I learned a ton and I think you will too. Um, sweet. Yeah. So I was doing a little bit of, uh, of background looking up on land to market and you guys work with a lot of the companies that I've interviewed, like Rep Provisions, Honest Bison, even some cool companies like Epic, Timberland, UGG, stuff like that. I mean, that's pretty exciting to work with like those big brands like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's the beauty of, you know, not just land to market, but also the Saber Institute, you know, the 501c3 nonprofit that we work hand in hand with is that we get to be able to work with, um, you know, producers ranging from, you know, the small family farm working on a single land base to these large brands, both on the meat side and in these fashion and apparel sides that are working with much more complicated or, you know, larger producer groups who are, who are managing a lot of different land bases and aggregating supply from all over. So it's, it's pretty amazing that the demand is out there for so many different types of goods or, or raw materials and being processed into pretty amazing products worldwide. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit more about what exactly is land to market and then how you specifically kind of got involved with them. Definitely. Yes. So land to market is its own public benefit corporation based out of here in Colorado, um, the United States, which is where I am. So I, I currently live on a ranch outside of Boulder County or in Boulder County outside of Boulder and, um, land to market being a public or a public benefit corporation here in Colorado, what we pretty much focus on doing is being the market side, the market facing regenerative supply chain company, if you like, um, where we're looking to bring product to marketplace from verified land bases that are trending regeneratively, trending positive in land health. And a lot of times in this conversation, when we think about land health or what exactly that means from an agriculture perspective is people can get caught up on maybe one specific part like carbon, you know, and not to say carbon is not important, but the beauty of land to markets verification program. So part of that regenerative supply chain work is verifying the land bases these raw materials are coming from is that we use Savory's ecological outcome verification monitoring protocol. We don't personally partake in that work. We're not the monitors ourselves, but there are affiliated Savory hubs worldwide that partake in this monitoring work. And these monitors work closely with producers who are producing this, you know, let's say land result through the integration of livestock, through holistic management, through adaptive grazing techniques, et cetera. And that gives us the trust, integrity, and uh, verification in, in those land bases health of being able to bring that claim to market. So we're literally that we're land to market. It's what we do. And, um, without, without those land health results, you know, land to market wouldn't exist. So the producers are the ones that are really doing the work and it's pretty incredible to see how these products can be brought to market. That's really cool. And you brought up a good point. Like carbon is a really big hot button issue now, like how much carbon farmers are capturing. What are some other things besides carbon that they're focusing on? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the EOB, this ecological outcome verification, this monitoring protocol it has 15 indicators, these leading and lagging, lagging indicators. And we can kind of group this into a few different, you know, concepts, if you like, these different cycles, these holes within holes is what, what it would be kind of in the, the holistic management terminology, which is community dynamics. So your different types of plants, you know, what are your functional groups? Do you have every type of grass species or grass functional group of grasses, meaning warm season, cool seasons? Do your pastures have, you know, trees or shrubs integrated in it? What is the level of biological complexity from a, a type of species that exists in those pastures? So ma managers of land bases can actually manage for biodiversity in pasture in terms of the actual plants present. Then you have your microbial communities, right? So the biological life living under the soil, there's that kind of classic adage, adage if you like, where there's a billion microbes in a teaspoon of soil. So there's so much happening underneath the soil as well, or in the soil that managers can be looking forward or looking to manage for. And then of course you have, you know, your water, your carbon, your nitrogen cycles, your different cycles of life that go beyond just maybe purely carbon sequestration, but also how is not just how is that carbon being stored, but how is it being actively used in a community of life from all levels within the ecosystem? And so 
you know, if the carbon cycle isn't functioning, the water cycle might not be functioning. The nitrogen cycle might not be functioning. All these things are massively interlinked. And it's quite difficult to actually say that a, man, a, a producer is managing for one thing. You know, we're, we're managing for an ecosystem or a suite of ecosystem functions that are just go beyond one specific uh, topic, if you like. So, yeah. Yeah, that it's interesting to learn more about that micro, that micro and macro focus that farmers are doing now that, you know, I mean, to to raise, let's say beef cattle, you want to have some healthy, great quality beef cattle. Well, you've got to raise like beef cattle, but you've also got to make sure that their local environment is ideal, whether that's the grass, the other organisms that are there. You've got to focus on a lot that really a lot of people don't really notice or really pay attention to until there are markets like you guys are more focused on regenerative agriculture where, you know, we want to learn more about that stuff. So that's very interesting that you really wouldn't think about until you kind of dive into the weeds about it. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I don't want to say I'll push back, but I think every human being, if you walk out into the woods or into the pasture or into a natural ecosystem that let's say is relatively intact, you feel that there's more than just one thing going on, right? Like we, we, we rarely, I mean, something that's beautiful about the sunrise, for example, is that you're not just looking at the sunrise. You're usually looking at it over a pretty beautiful view. And it's this idea that, you know, it's not necessarily complicated. These ecosystems are complex and there's just so many things happening at once that it's, you know, it's, it's quite a beautiful thing to think about this whole within whole idea, you know, this entire ecosystem functioning. And so I think, yes, if you go down the science rabbit hole, it is complicated and you wouldn't think about it, but I think everybody at least maybe at some point in their life has felt that kind of connection where you, if you just stop and listen, you know, you can feel, um, you can feel that there's more than just one thing going on. So not trying to get too off the rails or anything. And, and, but it's, you know, I think it's a genuine thing that we, we as humans can share. And what's one thing like you're working with land to market, what's kind of like your personal connection or something that you're trying to resonate with people as you're, trying to tell people more people about this, like what, what's the biggest impact it's had on you that you're trying to share maybe? Definitely. So I think where, if it's okay, I'll, I'll start with kind of how I got into agriculture. You know, my, my dad's a plasterer. My mom's an English teacher. I grew up on the beach mm. in South Carolina and I had nothing to do with agriculture. I'd been in and around natural ecosystems my whole life. I definitely was a nature boy, but growing up in, South Carolina, you know, I had these random encounters with different land bases that were, you know, being managed as farms or conservation areas. And it always interested me that we never really, I never really understood what they were doing. You know, it was like, oh, there's this nature preserve. Like, what does that do? You know, and I went and did a business degree. And during that time of studying, I ended up wolfing quite a lot, which is a way of essentially volunteer farming. And the same thing happened where I was just kind of curious, you know, in a business school, why aren't we talking about farming more as a opportunity in life as a business, right? Like, wow, I didn't know that you could do this. You know, it's usually go be a consultant, go be an investment banker. You know, there's this kind of natural path, if you like, in those education circles. And when I came out of, you know, these various agricultural experiences over, you know, a number of years, I decided just to go full on into it and went and farmed myself, farmed in a few different countries and a few different production settings. And the more and more I engaged in, you know, interning, operating, managing all kinds of different farming. Personally, I started to realize this really, there has to be a market for these kinds of products and these kinds of mm. ways that people are managing and they're just simply, I don't think it's not that there isn't the demand and land to market has shown there is the demand, but let's say in a general population, it's kind of like that, that idea I said about everyone knows what it's like to feed, you know, stand in the forest and go, wow, I, I believe that everybody wants these things. We just don't necessarily know it's possible. And so I got connected with David Rizzo and Chris Kirsten, the co-CEOs of land to market a few years ago, just on a personal level. 
And ever since then, you know, land to market just kind of intrigued me as this opportunity to kind of be a bridge builder, which is more or less what my role is today at land to market between producers who are doing incredible work, managing land in a way which is just honestly incredible. I don't know what other word I could use. And these brands who are recognizing people want these products. They want to meet the demand and they need to be a part of the journey to build the supply of bringing the market and the land together. And that is more or less when I was 18 year old, 18 years old in Portugal, wondering how can I make a career in agriculture? I mean, this is what I was hoping to do, you know, is be able to, to, to speak both languages and build that bridge in between there. So when land to market came around, it was kind of a no brainer, to be honest, um, in terms of trying to meet the different skill sets and passions that I've, I've developed and had since I felt a very young age. So yeah, I hope that answer wasn't that's, too long, but. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's perfect. Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. That I mean, that, that quote, like being a bridge builder between the producers and those brands. And I feel like a lot of people do want to support those farmers and ranchers that are doing that, but it's, it's difficult to find them. And also like in terms of convenience, like when we go to a grocery store, we just want to get something that's convenient. That's right there. But now because of land to market and just different brands and marketplaces that are really making it much more like a lot easier to buy and support those principles, those policies, those producers. I mean, it's making things a whole lot easier, which is awesome. And you guys are bringing awareness to the brands that, you know, maybe people already, um, they already support them. Like for example, I love Epic. Like I love getting an Epic protein bar. And now I know that they're involved with you guys in different farming practices. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. I'm already supporting them. But now I know that they are also supporting the producers that I really appreciate. So that's huge. Definitely. And you know, what's beautiful about our program too. And so I kind of mentioned this regenerative supply chain building, if you like, as well as this verification program. So land to market verified, which is that seal you would see on these products is an actual verification that the raw materials going into that product came from a land base that is trending positively in land health based on that EOV monitoring protocol. And in that verification process, we are not practice-based, we are outcomes-based. And we don't, mm. feedlots are a no-go. We don't, we don't work with feedlots. But what the outcomes-based mentality provides is this opportunity for the land to be the voice, right? So it's not about me judging whether or not, as Wyatt Ball, a regenerative ag practice is the correct one. It's about the land saying, well, this is what's happening and this is what that practice did to me. Let me tell you what's going on. And so that's a pretty unique uh, viewpoint in the verification world, if you like. And that is the building block to all the supply chain work that we engage in, in terms of both connecting to already existing demand and supply, but also trying to find producers and support the journey of producers getting into regenerative ag, who will be able to help meet the future demand or the current demand not being met within the regenerative ag mm -hmm. world. And so that outcomes-based idea is, is, is kind of, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, what are some struggles that have kind of gone along the um, being outcome-based where you're trying more to focus on the, the land, how the land's going to be developed? Like, What's kind of, have there been any struggles going about it, going about it that way? Definitely. You know, I think it's something I've been thinking about for a while and I'm not really sure what the right answer is on this. Right. But mm. when we talk about land health trending positive in whether in land and market or just if you're talking to a farmer, if you're talking to your friend and we're talking about regenerative bag, the market usually wants to have the security and the market could be the consumer, it could be a brand, it could be just anybody not producing and, and sometimes even producers want this idea that if I do this, I will see X percent of improvement in the next three years, year on year, kind of like how we would expect, you know, if you say I want an ROI of 8%, which would be crazy, right? I'd be, that'd be crazy, but mm -hmm. you know, you, you would want to see that and land health, due to the fact that it's nature and we have so many different variables going on from weather to personal lives of the producers to, to whatever it might be, that guarantee is, is pretty difficult to give. And really land health is kind of more of this stock ticker, stock market mentality 
where you might improve for a few years and then boom, a drought comes along. And even though you're managing very well, you might still see a decline compared to previous year. Now, the question becomes, is that decline indicative of a complete change in management? Are we going to see degradation and desertification? Or is this just something that is a natural cycle? And the longer we have data and extrapolation of these outcomes, the more confident we'll become in the overall trend line. And because this regenerative agriculture movement, in the words of regenerative ag, I mean, people have been doing this kind of work for a long time, you know, but let's say in the the framework of what is the trendy word of regenerative ag, you know, a lot of people want to see that result next year. And it's not impossible. And the more you do things like holistic management or adaptive grazing and, you know, understanding your soil and soil testing and all these things, which all take time, all take investment in education, all take the willingness to maybe change something that, you know, hasn't been done that way for generations. It that can lead to more confidence, but you're you can still expect, you know, a wavering in that stock ticker. And so I would say that's kind of both from a communicating to brands about that, you know, and also communicating to producers. It's a, it's a journey. It's a process. And it's just as much of an opportunity as it is a difficulty. That's very true. And I really like how you're talking about, like a lot of people have been doing this for a while. And I really consider regenerative ag kind of like a getting back to basics I mean, it's not that we're really discovering completely different ways of raising livestock or growing food. It's we're really getting back to ways it was done centuries ago, where we're focusing more on the land, on the ecosystems. But also, we can incorporate AI. We can incorporate all this big data to help us figure out, you know, the trends that we can expect by going back to the old school regenerative ag. Um, and I mean, like you're saying, like you can have one bad growing season or one bad weather season and it throws everything into a like into a bind. And so you might not see the changes overnight, but you're going to see them not only impact the quality of your livestock or of the crops, but of the ecosystem as a whole. And that's going to be huge. And really, I mean, I'm sure you can quantify that to a certain percentage, but I'm sure you also can't really quantify it perfectly. Yes. And that is, I mean, so when you do the EOB monitoring, you get a report, essentially a data set of what your land health is sitting at. We're not just saying like, you know, low, medium, high. <laughs> I mean, there is uh, this, this indicators, if you like, these listed indicators are quantifiable in the monitoring protocol. The, the complexity is that, you know, so I'd also like to kind of backtrack a little bit and say, we mainly focus our attention on grasslands and ruminant livestock ecosystems. That's really mm -hmm. what our bread and butter is, if you like. Um, and a grassland wants to grow grass. That is, its its desire is to continually cycle upwards within the health of a grassland ecosystem. So you're 100% right. Going back to basics, these, you know, ancient wisdoms, if you like, indigenous, w whatever the word might be that's correct, you know, these, these practices have existed for millennia, you know, and what we're seeing is kind of this resurgence of trying to manage land in a way that mimics the natural cycles of land management, right? So if you imagine these huge herds of bison roaming pre-European colonialization, you know, you would have had these massive, dense groups of animals trampling, you know, dropping manure, urinating, eating, all of these different ecosystems, birds coming behind, eating the manure, leaving insects, all, I mean, everything. And then they wouldn't have come back again for a year, two years, maybe three years. And doing that in a fenced in area, you know, if we can mimic that in the way that nature would have done, which, by the way, just, you know, these bison wouldn't have done the same line every year. You know, it wouldn't have been like, mm -hmm. okay, we'll come back in two years for the rest of eternity. There's change variability yeah. in all of this to where maybe that one rest period, you know, was a little overrested and a fire came through and something, you know, it's, it's almost like, how do you manage for complexity with a little bit of randomness, <laughs> right? That is, that is oh, kind yeah. of nature. And so the quantifiable data is definitely possible. And that's what we, we work on. I mean, that's the verification, right? But there's also this element of randomness that almost, I personally question whether or not we should aim to get rid of it, 
you know, because there is an element of randomness in nature cycles as well. We don't have the same size hurricane every year, regardless of, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, the climate change conversation is a whole different thing, but I'm from South Carolina and that's why I said hurricanes. Cause that's what I grew up with. <laughs> well, Hey, I'm from Florida. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, very, I, I relate with you. Yeah. <laughs> some years are terrible and some years you have three in one year, you know, and, or so, yeah. Yeah, no, for real. And, and, you know, I mean, talking about the grasslands, like there's a lot of people that are, I mean, really kind of like anti-agriculture and they're like, you know what, the grasslands just need to be grasslands, but they don't realize that like bison, other animals are native to those grasslands. And without those livestock, the grasslands are going to die. It's a symbiotic relationship where the livestock need the grassland, the grassland need the livestock. And honestly, we need both of them to survive for food, for careers, for jobs. And so, I mean, it's not like you can have one without the other. You've got to have both of them. Definitely. And, you know, so there's so the Savory Institute, that 501c3 nonprofit that I mentioned earlier, is founded by a man called Alan Savory. And he has an incredible TED Talk on YouTube. It It's pretty, I think he's got 10, 12, 15 million views, something of that regard. Mm. And he does a very good job of explaining kind of the importance of grasslands and the naturality of grasslands. And Something that folks who are against animal agriculture sometimes forget is that a lot of the places where vegetables or fruit crops, especially crops are grown, are native grasslands. And I'm not trying to get into the conversation of the ethics of what animal has a higher value in life or whatever. But when Mm -hmm. you till up a grassland, yes, you might remove that slaughterable animal and save that life from that perspective. But there are earthworms, dung beetles, microbes, birds, you know, voles, prairie dog. I mean, there's so many wolves, so many different creatures that coexist on that grassland that when you take away that ruminant animal, which is a essential aspect of the cycle of that ecosystem, you are going to disrupt the food chain of everything else. And a lot of the breadbasket of America is tilled up grasslands whether, whether we like that or not. And that's not to, to put any shade on vegetable growers or, you know, corn and soybean growers, farmers, you know, I'm not a big fan, for example, of fence line photos without context, because sometimes Mm. you might get this, you know, grassland in a, in a recently tilled cropland field and personally not huge fan of tilled cropland, but it's without context, right? I mean, there you don't know if that, that farmer is doing the regenerative practices. You don't know if they're seeding in cover crops. You don't know if they're using, you know, organic compost to, to put minerals back into the, like, we don't know. And so why I'm bringing that up is that I also think to be cautious about just assuming, you know, a green looking field is automatically better than another field too, you know, because you have to have context of how that ecosystem performs and wants to move. Yeah, context is key. And I mean, you're talking about, um, you know, whenever you plow a field, you, you know, you've got to worry about all the organisms in there. I haven't watched it. And honestly, I need to. But Yellowstone, the show, I feel like has done a good job. And there's a really good quote by Kevin Costner where he's talking about, you know, like if you're vegan or whatever. Um, I think he's talking to like protesters. He's like, you've got to think about all the natural animals that you're tilling, that you're getting rid of. Like, I mean, there's just so much that goes into it that a lot of people don't think about. But yeah, that's why. And I think the context thing is, is very key because just because the field is green doesn't mean they're doing everything right. Just because the field is brown doesn't mean they're doing everything wrong. Like no two farms are the same. No two processes are the same. There's a lot that goes into it. Um, but yeah, for real. So moving on a little bit, I, I, I wrote this question down because I wanted to ask you, um, like, how does this help producers? Like, how does it help producers working with you guys how does it help them? Like, obviously, get gets their name out there, gets to like some recognition. What are some other ways that working with land market with land to market? How does this, how does this help those producers? Definitely, there are a few different ways. You know, the first mm-hmm. way is that we can provide brand opportunities that might not exist without something like land to market. So we might have a brand who comes to us and says, "We want to source this material." from a verified regenerative land base. And we have the capacity to see back into the chain, to see the producers and say, you know, producer A, here's this opportunity, what do you think? And 
that opportunity, a lot of the times we think of livestock, we think of meat, but there is a whole host of fifth quarter products, pretty much meaning anything but the meat, you know, bones, awful mm -hmm. hides, feet, you know, whatever it might be that we can find additional value. And in the commodity market usually is a cost to these producers. So, you know, for example, um, with the recent UG launch, you know, that is a, that's a lamp, a sheepskin, right? I mean, that's a boot that is being sourced from regenerative land bases in New Zealand and is a fifth quarter product or a, a secondary product, if you like, it's not the primary revenue driver. And instead of having to pay for a removal fee or not get any value in that additional product, there's a whole animal utilization aspect that that producer is now receiving value for. And so on the, the, the summary of that point is pretty much whole animal utilization. You know, we work with pet food companies. We work with, um, you know, brands that might be wanting to use various different parts of the hide for different products and being able to move that into different parts of their own supply chain. The second way we help is that in that storytelling and in that, you know, direct to market or direct to consumer marketing, the customers can now have that verification. They can have that trust and integrity in the claim that, yes, these producers are actually doing what they say. They are monitoring the land. There's a third party verification of that data. And there is this outward facing claim that is verified by a third party. And that that is also just another step in confidence that a producer might or might not have. And then another way is that I mentioned the commodity markets earlier is that, you know, a lot of the times what can happen is a producer can go the whole lifespan of a livestock class, get to the sell point, and they have to sell at commodity price to a sale barn. And that price could be a much different uh, price point than what they could be getting if they were paying to a premium brand or a brand that's looking for that product. So mm -hmm. whole animal utilization, market and storytelling capacity, the actual science behind the monitoring protocol, right? I mean, that's not necessarily what we, we don't, like I said, we don't engage in the monitoring as a company, but the producers have that report of how their land is functioning. And, um, and then that commodity difference. That's awesome. And, and before I forget about it, can, can this be for both for brands that want ongoing relationships with regenerative farmers, but can it also be for, I don't know, maybe some short-term campaigns, like maybe Timberland Farms or maybe Timberland, for example, the boot company, maybe they want to do a line just for a month of boots that are used by, um, I don't know, regenerative raised cattle. Like it could it be for both, both long-term and short-term goals for those brands. It could be the way we work with brands that we go into a membership agreement essentially where we look to build supply chains together and it's not to say no i don't i don't want to say no at all but our focus is building you know long-term supply chains that will be supporting the regenerative ag overall movement but by all means we do work with these brands and do capsule line products you know where they might be releasing one specific product for one month i mean that's that's no worries at all and that might be the, the primary or the first goal but still the long-term scope of work that we usually engage in is to build these kind of larger targets within a supply chain to forward the overall demand and supply movement. And so another thing I wanted to talk about, um, I feel like a lot of consumers want to support these sorts of farmers, these sorts of products, but obviously sometimes the, the barrier for consumers is the cost. You know, like some of these products might be a little bit more expensive why is that? And obviously, like, I think that those costs are going to go down as more people tend to are going to focus on regenerative farming um, practices, products, stuff like that. So why is the cost just a little bit higher for these products? And then how can we lower it? Ooh, yes, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> I know there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot. <laughs> so I'll start maybe about instead of why are they so expensive? Why is food so cheap? Um, I think mm -hmm. that's a good context to provide is that you know, and it, and I'm not sure if the listeners here are, are familiar with the subsidization programs of the U.S. in terms of your commodity crops, but that's an easy one, a low-hanging fruit. Everyone can knock on that door. You know, essentially the monoculture world of the United States agricultural program is heavily subsidized. But going beyond that, it's not just the subsidization of those, those specific crops or commodities. 
It's also the inputs, right? So we've seen in the last two, three years with all the different crises going on around the world, a massive increase in the price of nitrogen fertilizer. I'm talking three to four times more expensive. And pretty much any, any system outside of a natural grassland ecosystem and with a ruminant grazing on it requires some level of inputs. So chickens, you have to feed them grain, corn, soybean, et cetera. I mean, you could choose your formula. That could be a non-corn, non-soybean feed, but you're bringing in feed usually. Some, some growers are possible at growing all of their feed on their own land, and that's incredible, you know, having that closed loop system, but that's expensive, so maybe that price of chicken will be higher. Pork is the same thing, a monogastric. You have to feed it input feed. So it's kind of a, before this last few years, the subsidization and low cost of these different inputs, nitrogen just being one example, allowed for food to be so cheap. So you could find that two and a half dollar, you know, pound of ground beef at Publix, for example. But when you look at the regenerative, this grass fed, you know, grass only ecosystem. I don't know if I want to get this nerdy and technical on all this, but, <laughs> you know, for example, with livestock, if you have a grass fed, grass finished animal, you're looking at about 30 months right? It's going to, it's going to be alive for, you know, two and a half, maybe three years for a pure meat mm -hmm. animal that's bred for that purpose. In the commodity livestock market in a feedlot, that animal could be slaughtered in half the time. So now you're talking about just purely the length of feeding an animal, of watering an animal, of moving an animal, of making sure that animal has the right supplementary minerals if need be, because they're on pasture and they might be two and a half miles away from your farmhouse and you have to go move that and pay for the diesel. And I mean, it, it requires additional work having those animals out on pasture and you're not just scales of efficiency, you know, economies of scale with bringing everything to one centralized point and feeding them subsidized commodity inputs. And so mm -hmm. the more that we, you look into that grass fed or this, and I'm using grass fed, it's not necessarily a land to market thing. That's just kind of a more, normalized term in, in the livestock industry, if you like, is that you'll see that the kind of, it's not necessarily, I don't want to use the word harder or easier, but you have more time invested in an animal and you have more mm. touch points with an animal in terms of different varying degrees of flexibility. And that can just incur extended costs on an animal. And, I, and that's, I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but you know, for, for people who might not be familiar with how animals are raised, you know, you have food, water, rest, and severe weather shelter, essentially. And, you know, getting food to an animal that could be two, three, four miles away from you on rangeland in the middle of winter during a three foot snowstorm is a very different proposition than inside a cattle barn, you know, or inside a feedlot. And um, obviously you're not working in four feet of snow year round, but it's just there's more variability in that. Let's say nature's randomness again comes into it. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's just one one kind of point of that. I kind of rambled there, so I hope I didn't get too far off point. But <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean, th those are all valid things. I mean, like you said, there's so many more touch points and so many things that you have to do checks and balances for these different practices. And it's something I really need to learn more about it. But the impact that our subsidies have on our crops and on our food, I mean, we expect food to be so cheap. And then we're like, I don't know, we get that cheap food. And then we realize how it was grown. And we're like, well, you know what, I kind of like these more regenerative practices, but that's much more expensive. And then you dig into the weeds a little bit, and you kind of figure out the whole system subsidies, all that stuff. And you're like, this is a lot more complicated than I thought. And it's going to take a lot more time to, to, I don't know, kind of fix it a little bit, I guess you could say. But I mean, that was a good explanation. I, I mean, I know that there's a lot to impact there when it comes to the cost of all this stuff. And one more thing I'd like to add is also just the amount of supply out there, right? I mean, you have your natural yeah. basic economics of supply and demand. And, you know, I would, I don't have a, a real number, so I'm not going to pretend to know. But let's say within this regenerative paradigm, there's probably still only one, two, three percent you know, of the whole yeah. livestock world. And um, that's a big behemoth to fight, you know, and uh, plants that might be processing regenerative livestock. And this by no means, there are pretty decent scale producers out there doing amazing work. 
I mean, amazing work in this space. I don't even want to pretend that this is a universal statement. But if you're working with smaller processors, you know, a large JBS facility can can slaughter 300 head or 3000 head in a day. You know, you might be working with a processor that does nine to 12. And that just, again, storage costs, diesel costs, freight costs. If you're a producer that isn't sending a full load and you're sending less than full capacity load on a trailer with your animals to a processing facility, you're still paying as if that truck was going full. And so mm -hmm. that, you know, Another thing land to market does from a producer perspective, going back to that building supply chains, is the fragmented producer network across the world. But I feel right now we're talking in the U.S. context. We're also working to bring that together to aggregate that supply and these key mm -hmm. supply chain partners and try to find those costs where we are able to reduce the cost from a supply chain perspective, find a market buyer or a market partner who's looking into that product and start to help aggregate supply rather than just have these fragmented producers all over the world. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, even when it comes to the supply chain, like whether it's um, people like you guys, land to market or just traditional, like we saw a lot of the issues that our kind of convoluted supply chain had um, during the pandemic. Like it's just so strained and there's not nearly as much stuff to process, whether it's beef or, or um, you know, traditional produce. Like it's so weird that, I don't know, we need to expand our food supply system a little bit to where we have more options and more options like you guys like land to market and the different products and brands that you guys relate. And so it's weird. I mean, we kind of need to fix all this. And it seems like companies like you guys are definitely doing their part. Yep. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you hit the nail on the head. And, you know, it's funny, I talk about global supply chains. And, you know, I also work on local supply chains, but I'd say the majority of the food I eat comes within a half a mile of where I live, because I, I, I live on a ranch, and I get to, I get to be a part of a local food system. So even though, you know, professionally, it's important to, to fix these problems, I'm still a giant advocate of local food systems, of supporting your local farmer of getting out there and knowing how your producers around you when and if you can you know, are growing food for you. I mean, producers want to feed people. That is that is the goal. There's immense pride in that. And so it means a lot for a farmer when you take the time to understand the work they're doing. And yes, you might have to pay an additional dollar on that ground beef. You know, maybe if you're talking about a more premium product like organic versus, you know, your mm -hmm. local farmer's market beef, not, not necessarily commodity ground beef. But, you know, um, I still am a huge advocate of the need also for these local food sheds, if you like, where you're really engaging in your local community when, when and if possible. Urban cities, much different case when you're talking about a New York City, for example. But there's still amazing producers who drive in produce or drive in product every every week to farmers markets in the city. Um, Essex Farms is a farm in New York, for example. I have no affiliation with them. I've only heard about them through friends and uh, people in the space. And I know that they do a delivery, you know, into New York city and they, they're about two and a half hours outside. So there, there's always unique ways to find access. Um, it's just does come down to that price premium and it does come down to building that market to help both the producer find and realize the true price of their, their product and, and make a living, but also make it accessible to the mass market. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I mean, like you were saying, you might not be able to find somebody five, 10 minutes away from you that's a farmer, but like if you're in a city, but you can find somebody that's two or three hours away, that's going to be a lot better for you, a lot closer than, you know, if you just go to a supermarket and you get beef that's actually from Brazil or Australia, and you can support those local jobs, those local careers. I mean, there's always a way. Like, it takes a little bit of research and finding the right people and connecting with them, but it's definitely possible. And, and, and I'm not saying, you know, it... There's also a time and a place for global supply chain. So that's why I was kind of acknowledging oh, the own because that's what, you know, if you don't have that opportunity and or you simply, mm -hmm. you know, it's not everybody's passion and that's okay. You know, that's, it's like it's everybody doesn't have to agree on everything, but that's where that land to market verification comes into play. And it's like if you do go to a grocery store, if you do want to just quickly look at a, a product seal and be like, okay, this is, you know, Alexander Family Farms Dairy land to market verified coming from a land base that is doing well, boom, that's what I want in my cart. You can do that. You know I mean? So there's just what, what I personally don't believe in is just looking at every problem as if the only solution is the hammer, right? You know, when you only have a hammer, everything mm. looks like a nail. And what I, 
it's the same thing, you know, with my job working with producers. If I were to talk with producers as if everybody was a massive meat company conglomerate and vice versa, if I were to talk to every family producer as if they were a massive, you know, or, or the opposite, you know, life is not that simple. Supply chains are not that simple. There is a complexity, an inherent complexity that we as people have to address. And we as a company, Land to Market, are looking to address by working amongst the whole supply chain, by not just favoring one specific type. Yeah, that's smart. And you brought up a really good point. I mean, not everybody can buy or even really wants to get, you know, organic or regenerative raised. And we don't need to, I don't know, we don't need to shame them because you see so much food bullying online. It's like, oh, you don't need to eat beef. You only need to eat organic beef. Like some people can't because they can't afford it. Some people can't because they don't have any other options. And if you want to support those growing methods, go for it. If you don't want to, that's fine. Like we all have our things that we want to support. And I mean, I think it's a great option for people to have that we can, you know, educate and also make a little bit more readily available. And also like you guys show them that, hey, if you support these brands already, you might already be supporting these practices that you are learning about, which is huge. Exactly. And also just connecting things that we don't necessarily always think to an animal, like a leather handbag or a shoe, you know, an Ugg boot. I mean, just remembering and, and educating the consumer on, you know, a lot of the products we see around the world do come from livestock, you know, and, um, just just reconnecting all of these fragmented pieces that have happened is is an essential part and without it you know without that understanding that there are aspects of our supply chain that you know interweave amongst many different industries that could come from the same exact animal i saw a great graphic the other day on linkedin about it was essentially a, a cow and it had a list of all the different products that could come from it. I mean, we're talking pharmaceuticals, we're talking hair products, oh, yeah. know, lip balm. I mean, it's just the, the list goes on and on. And every one of those products ideally could be coming from a regenerative land base. And you don't necessarily have to support regenerative agriculture. It's just, you could be buying a chapstick and you're supporting a regenerative producer. You know, you could buy a tallow candle and you could be supporting a regenerative producer and you could still not eat meat you know, if you wanted to. So I know that still might go against the vegan message of you know, <laughs> yeah. animal products, but it's just, there's, there's ways to be creative about supporting something like this. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like the sky's the limit. I mean, there are like band-aids, fireworks, makeup, I mean, watch bands that are all, all, you know, traced back to livestock. And I mean, one of my favorite um, ag facts I like to tell people, I, I told students when I was teaching, I was like, did you know that I believe it was Ferrari they work with only a select few of of cattle farms because they only use um, steer hide. They don't use cow hide because, you know, when the cow's pregnant, the the hide expands and shrinks down. So they want to hide the con that is the consistent length. I'm like, that's pretty cool. I, I wonder if maybe that could be a thing. Like, I don't know, maybe you buy a Corvette here in the States and it's, you know, um, land to market work with them to find, you know, regenerative raised cattle for that. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, we're working on it. I mean, and there's, there's things like we work with a company who does, you know, insulation filler with wool instead of it being a, mm. um, you know, a plastic filling essentially. So there's, there's, there really is, I, I kind of love that back to basics thing. You know, there is so many opportunities mm -hmm. and the sky is the limit. And I feel sometimes in the world of quote unquote business, we focus on, is it the consumer's responsibility or is it the market? It's we're pushing all angles because it's not just one. We have to rethink how we look at building supply chains, at purchasing products, at verifying products, right? We're not a checklist of practices, we're outcomes based and relating that all to land health. And that is, that is a, a, a pretty new market uh, ideal, you know, maybe not necessarily a new ideal in, in humanity, but it's a new market ideal. And we, we really look to see that succeeding and really believe in that message. And I really believe in that message. You know, I do believe it's possible to have these products and things, you know, Ferrari or Honda, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and, and it's just on, a, on another caveat. And that is the other part about the regenerative or pasture-based animals is, you know, I'm glad you brought up the Ferrari thing because an animal, you know, a cow, a mama cow who might be living on pasture for six years, you know, she might scrape her back on some sticks or trees a few times like she should. That's her inherent instinct, you know, 
And that hide might have a few scratches on it and it might not be the perfect consistency and the perfect singular standardized hide. And that's another part of nature's randomness that we have to encourage people to kind of get back with being comfortable with as well. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. I mean, nature's randomness. And also, I really like that quote, and I wrote that down. Um, is it the consumer's responsibility or the market's? That's really good. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe both. Like the market could see, hey, do consumers want this? And consumers can say, hey, we want this. Can you provide it? Is it possible? Like we can help. Like, I think that's really cool. And obviously you guys are doing that. Like you're providing a market option for consumers that are interested in that. Um, and so if people want to learn more about land to market, where can they go? I know you, you guys have got an awesome website that showcases what consumers can do, what brands they can look for. I mean, what all can they do to learn more about land to market? Yep. Land market.com. There are podcasts as well with Chris Kirsten and David Rizzo. Um, who are the co-CEOs of the company as well. I can't remember the name of the podcast off the top of my head, but if you type in the names on on a podcast media, you should be able to see them. And then we're on Instagram and we're on LinkedIn as well. And then I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can check out me if you want. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a moving a moving market, a moving system every day. And you know, one last Chris Chris Kirsten, I don't know if he quoted this or if this is his quote or not, but something he likes to say sometimes is, you know, regarding the market or consumer's responsibility is if it was up to the consumer before the car, we would have just tried to breed faster horses, you know, and it's like, <laughs> nobody would ask for the car. And it's sometimes the responsibility of both, you know, to adopt the car and also to, to build it. So that's what we're in the business of doing is we're trying to build the supply, help the supply be built, but also find the market, educate the market and build the, the links in between. Bridge building. That's what it is, man. It's all about bridge building. <laughs> bridge building. All about connecting those two. Farmers and consumers. I love it, man. I love it. Well, Wyatt, this has been great, man. Um, we'll link everything below in the description, but thanks so much for being on, man, and best of luck with Land the Market. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Farm Traveler Podcast. Again, if you want to learn more, check out landtomarket.com and also check out thefarmtraveler.com where you can see a ton of our content where we help bridge the gap between farmers and consumers and all of that good stuff. And also, we've got a cool little page on our website, The Farm Traveler. Go and check out the Farm Finder page. There you can see a map of the continental United States and you can click and see what farms and ranches you can actually visit close to you. Um, I'm still trying to build this up, so if you would like to be on that map, send me an email at farmtravelerseries at gmail.com, and I will add you to that map. It's for any farms and ranches that you know you can e either order online from, or you could actually go and tour with an, you know, a farm tour. So I think it'll be cool to kind of see how this map grows. So again, check that out at thefarmtraveler.com slash farm finder, or of course, check it out in the description of this episode. So thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.